0: Live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Agenia, Internet Radio. Today is, I really don't know what today is. Today is Friday, May 22nd, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Usually I check the date before the podcast begins. Tonight is the 52nd installment of our presentation of the Epistles of Paul of Tarsus, and the twelfth and final in our series of presentations on 2 Corinthians. Following this, we shall let Paul alone for a while and present other topics as Melissa and I will be on the road for several weeks, the end of this month through June, through the first half of June, anyway. Our programs, May 29th and 30th, will be broadcast from northeast Georgia, and the following week we will be in eastern Pennsylvania, Yahweh willing. Tentatively, we will commence our scriptural exegesis no later than June 27th with the prophet Zephaniah and then move on to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Tonight we have the Epistles of Paul. 2 Corinthians, part 12, and it's subtitled, for reasons which will become evident soon, Christian Transcendentalism. Since the middle of 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, Paul has been defending himself and his ministry against those in Corinth who were also attempting to undermine and corrupt the Christian assemblies there. Therefore, he found it necessary to discuss some of the trials and challenges which he had faced in the conduct of his ministry. He considered his having to do that as boasting, even if he simply was found to be reiterating plain facts. This too should stand as an example to Christians as to what should constitute boasting to a Christian? As Paul began defending himself, he laid forth another sound principle, that the word of God is the measure which Christians must use in order to estimate the value of those who are administering the gospel of Christ. Therefore, if one comes to you preaching a gospel other than the gospel of Christ, other than the gospel of Which we have received from the apostles, or who claims to have some sort of esoteric knowledge which is not consistent with the Word of God, that person must be rejected as a false apostle, a treacherous worker, and is perhaps even a minister of Satan. Presenting these things in our last segment, I have used an example current to my own experience from correspondence. I recently had with a man who purports himself to be a minister of God, a professor of the truth. This man claimed that he had been to the heavens and back more than once, and therefore had some esoteric knowledge based upon his own supposed personal experience. Then he told me that he supposedly had a message for me from God to, quote-unquote, Get rid of the hate and balance your gifts of wisdom with love. What such fools do not realize is that hate is a necessary component of love. The two cannot exist apart from each other, although each of them may be misused as well as they are properly used. God loves, as we see in the scripture, and God also hates. One place in Scripture where this is clear is Malachi chapter 1, from a passage which Paul himself quotes in Romans chapter 9, and where Yahweh God is portrayed as saying to the children of Israel, I have loved you. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now Esau ostensibly is not the only thing God hates, but Esau is the scriptural example. So we see that God hates, and in Malachi he is portrayed as hating Esau and his progeny. Paul of Tarsus must have shared that hate. As in Romans chapter 9, he identified the progeny of Esau as vessels of destruction. We see that David, the king, had said in the Psalms, in Psalm 139, not about Esau in particular, but about those who hate God in general, in a prayer to God. Do not I hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. In order to express love for God, men must also stand against all those who hate God and also all of those who despise God's law. Therefore, from 2 Chronicles chapter 19, from verse 2, and we'll read it in part, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and have love for them that hate Yahweh? Therefore, if you do those things, therefore is the wrath upon you from before Yahweh. In other words, if you assist those who hate God and who despise his law, his wrath is upon you. Ostensibly, if we accept people who despise the law of God, then we bring wrath upon ourselves. Therefore, it is good for us to hate, so long as our hatred is godly, as the measure of our hatred is the Word of God. Hatred enables us to defend the things that we should love. And we should indeed love our God, His law and our kinsmen in that order. All of these things, which we have just summarized, are relevant to what we are about to hear from Paul of Tarsus in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If a man claiming to have been to the heavens and back more than once, and purporting to have messages from God, was indeed speaking the truth then those messages which he had from God would be consistent with the Scripture. If his messages are not consistent with Scripture, he has either deceived himself or he is purposely attempting to deceive others. If, as Paul said, the Word of God is the measure which Christians must use then there are no messages from God which are contrary to the word of God in Scripture. All who claim to bear such messages must be rejected as false apostles and ministers of Satan. With this, we shall commence with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A need to boast is truly not beneficial, some manuscripts add the words, to me. But I do come into visions and revelations of the prince, or the Lord. Once again, Paul imagines his relating of his own experiences to be boasting, just to recount the things that he has experienced, are boasting. And he says that a need to do so is not beneficial. As Paul had asserted in Romans chapter 14, From verse 22, do you have faith? Have it concerning yourself in the presence of God. Whenever Paul had taught the gospel, it was not from his own personal experiences, but rather from the scriptures that he sought to edify the assemblies. On those occasions where, and they are few, where he had to give advice based upon his own opinions, because it was not something which was in the Scripture. And there are a couple of examples. He attested that it was only his opinion, and therefore he informed us that it was not a commandment. So Paul didn't try to make new laws for things that Scripture did not address. Man doesn't properly make law. Paul didn't try to make new commandments based on his opinion because the commandments of God should be enough for man. So Paul attested when he had to give his opinion because he was confronted with something that was not explained in Scripture, that it was only his opinion and not a commandment which we have, for example, in his admonitions concerning marriage in a time of persecution in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the example we should follow today, and therefore we esteem any man who claims to have an esoteric knowledge which he would in turn dictate to others as gospel to be a teacher of vanities and a false prophet. Verse 2. Paul of Tarsus. Fourteen years ago, I knew a man among the number of the anointed. And yes, that could say in Christ, as the mainstream translations have it. Paul's talking about the general body of Christ. They are the anointed. As the Apostle John says, the anointing which we have received. Fourteen years before Paul had written, this epistle would have been, with all certainty, sometime around early 43 AD, which was just before the events of Acts chapter 12 and the death of Herod Agrippa I, which occurred in the spring of 44 AD. During this time, Paul was in both Antioch and Jerusalem. In the closing verses, Acts chapter 11 we read and in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch and there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar then The disciples, every man, according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. While we shall not speculate exactly who it was that Paul was referring to here, His comments may certainly be understood in the context. His comments here may certainly be understood in the context of Acts chapter 11, in the end of that passage. And Paul continues, Whether in the body, I know not, or outside of the body, I know not. Yahweh knows such a man being carried off to the third region of heaven. Transcendentalism, the belief that we could transcend the existence that we are in now. Transcendentalism is a belief that there is more to existence than meets the eye, and that the consciousness or spirit of man can indeed transcend or overcome The material world is an integral component of the Christian faith, as it says in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. In the first chapter of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, The Apostle John said in verse 10 that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And then again, and I'm quoting the King James Version here, and then again in chapter 4 we read from verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the, the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Then again, once again, in chapter 17 of the Revelation, John wrote, In verse 3 of one of the seven angels, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. In the opening verse of the prophecy of Ezekiel, we read, now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kibar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God, It is clear in Ezekiel, as well as in other scriptures, that in ancient times, the Hebrews were accustomed to gathering at the rivers for prayer, which, if we examine the New Testament, is the most likely reason why John the Baptist encountered so many Israelites at the rivers on the Sabbath days. Likewise, in Daniel chapter 9, we read, And while I was speaking, and praying, and confessing my sin, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yeah, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, that doesn't mean fly with wings through the air touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. So the prophets and the apostles of Yahweh God received visions and revelations through prayer to God. And of that there is no doubt. But the true transcendental path is in the law and the prophets of the one true God. Any other path can lead man to deception. Transcendentalism belongs to Christians. As Christ had told his disciples, no man gets to the Father except through him. When those transcendental moments occurred, the apostles and prophets of God describe themselves as if their consciousness was in an environment other than that of their immediate physical surroundings. But a man who boasts of having done this, according to the example set here by Paul of Tarsus, is being foolish. And a man who claims to have esoteric knowledge in this manner, which is contrary to to the plain word of Scripture, is a false prophet and a minister of Satan, and of that there is no doubt. We can all have dreams and visions, but not all dreams and visions are truly from God. Here Paul professes that while he was in such a state of prayer, He really did not understand whether his mind or spirit remained in his body. And therefore, Paul could not detect in this state of consciousness whether he was only imagining a departure from his body or whether his spirit did indeed depart from his body. And in the end, whichever one you want to believe, one or the other, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. And you don't necessarily have to choose one. Choose a side. Which one was it? That, that's a um, tactic the Jews love to use, getting you to choose something that you cannot know. And then they try to undermine you and ruin your faith by getting you to choose something you can't know. We don't have to choose. There are some things which we just can't know. And that same thing. In that same manner, Paul's admission is humble. And that is also an example which we Christians should follow. Perhaps we should do a series and call it Pragmatic Transcendentalism. (laughs) The third region of heaven, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. The third region of heaven reflects Paul's view of the creation only in some part. And this is not by itself some sort of cosmological treatise. And therefore, any conclusions regarding the structure of the universe cannot be made based upon such a single and limited statement. In a writing known as 2 Enoch, Second Enoch, 2 Enoch, it is asserted that there are seven heavens which represents a cosmology similar to that of the Babylonians and the Hindus and certain other pagan religions. We would not promote any of those things as we would not promote the rather late writing known as to Enoch. It certainly didn't belong to Enoch. We would not promote it as being authoritative in any degree. Furthermore, the Babylonian model of the heavens, the seven heavens, seems to have associated a region of heaven with each of the major visible heavenly bodies or planets, which were in turn associated with the various of their idols or gods, if we want to use that word, of their idols. The Hindu model differed significantly in that it esteemed the existence of seven heavens or higher worlds, each of which were attainable by man through some rather human estimation of the path to piety. And it is also imagined that there were seven lower worlds or seven hells as well as seven heavens. Both of these models, the Hindu and the Babylonian, are derived from the sophistry of man. And both models are contrary to the word of the God of the Bible. There are some other similar beliefs in ancient pagan religions which vary on this theme. The Romans kind of fell in line with the Babylonians. It it seems that the ancient Germanic pagans reflected a belief in nine realms, including Midgard, or earth, Niflheim, or hell, and seven other realms which were occupied either by gods or by demons. I would call them demons. They were actually elves, or giants, or other fascinating creatures. Those nine realms were imagined to each be a part of a giant tree. So the seven heavens view of the pagans is certainly not the view of Christian scripture. And we cannot deduce much more from Paul's description here as to what he meant by the third region of heaven. There are some things which we don't have to know until we get more information. We just leave them on the back burner. The form of the word, most often translated as heavens in the plural, in the Old Testament. The form of the word is, in the Hebrew language, a noun of dual form. Dual form nouns indicate that there are specifically two of the item being described. So when a noun is found in the dual form, the language is telling us, the person speaking the word is telling us, that he's referring to two of the item involved. In English we only have singular and plural. We don't have dual form nouns. If we had a dual form, then the singular would mean one, the dual form would mean two, and the plural would mean three or more. That's the way the Hebrew is. There are actually some archaic Greek nouns that are dual form nouns. Osa is one of them. It is the singular word for I, and then there's osa, which means two eyes. It's a dual form. Therefore, Paul's reference to the third heaven is not necessarily indicative of there actually being three or more heavens. For this reason and others, translating this passage, we chose to render the Greek word, oranos as a region of heaven. We interpreted the word that means heaven as a to mean a region of heaven. And Liddell and Scott explained that the word was indeed used to describe heaven or the sky or a region of heaven. So we interpreted it in that manner so that we could show that Paul's thinking does not necessarily conflict with the Hebrew idea that heavens, in English being plural, was a dual form noun. That's technical. But we can't purposely translate the scripture so that it's in conflict with itself. If we have an alternative where the scripture is not in conflict with itself, then with all honesty, We must choose the alternative. Verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I know not. Yahweh knows. And that's all that matters, right? That he had been carried off into that paradise, and he had heard unutterable sayings, which to speak with a man is not permitted. The, um, a couple of codices and the majority text have the um, parenthetical clause in verse 3 to read. Whether in the body or outside of the body, I know not. Yahweh knows. Slight difference. The unutterable sayings are not necessarily forbidden by some law but may well be forbidden by the mere facts of creation, that man is simply unable to know them or unable to hear them. There are limits of the written law, but there are also the limits of nature which preclude man from doing things, whereby man simply does not have the ability to do everything which he may be able to imagine. For instance, it is not permitted for man to jump so high as the moon. But there is no written law against such a thing. So where Paul says, which to speak with a man is not permitted, it could simply be a limit of the physical creation, for instance. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's some law in heaven. Thou shalt not speak in this tongue to a man. The Greek word paradisis, paradisis is here traditionally transliterated as paradise or simply a park in Greek or in Hebrew. That's all it means is a park. Liddell and Scott say that this is a Persian word brought in by xenophon, meaning that xenophon, who was a historian and a soldier, who wrote in the early 4th century BC and who had much interaction with Persians, Xenophon knew them well, is credited with introducing the Persian word for park into the Greek language, where it appears as paradisis. However, the word, or more properly, probably paradisis, however, the word is clearly Cognate with the Hebrew word pardes, Strong's number 6508. A pardes in Hebrew is a park, a forest, or an orchard. The word pardes appears in the Song of Solomon in chapter 4, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and in Nehemiah chapter 2. And the King James translates it either as orchard or forest. So a paradisus is basically a park. And that is how Paul of Tarsus characterized that third heaven, or perhaps third region of heaven, which he mentions here. However, that too is quite ambiguous. This is also the same word that Christ had used when he told the robber, Today you shall be with me in paradise, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 23. Paul's using the same Greek word. Many modernists modernists would scoff at these concepts and at this language, imagining themselves to be wise in their own so-called science. However, even now they admit that the vast majority of the universe is filled with what they call dark matter, which cannot be seen with the eye, nor described, nor explained, although they profess to know that it exists. As David said in the Psalms, in Psalm 19, and I'll read it from the NASB, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. If we ourselves had to conjecture as to why the Hebrew word for heavens in the Old Testament is a dual form noun, we would distinguish the two heavens of the Old Testament word into that which is perceived by man and that which is not which is perhaps detectable in that unknown dark matter, which the scientists grope for but cannot find. It is arrogant of man to think that he arose from nothing into an existence that he can be able to fully understand, even when there is obviously much more to existence, or should we say, much more to creation than man understands. It is an arrogant of man to think that the consciousness arose from nothing when they cannot even adequately explain that phenomenon. The scientists in their journals even admit that they cannot explain conscience and they cannot explain consciousness. While it is readily evident that not all creatures have a proportionate degree of either one or the other. As Paul of had explained in Romans chapter 1, which we shall only paraphrase here, that which is to be known of God is visible among men, because God has made it known to men. God has made known to men the unseen things of his from the creation of the cosmos, or the order, or the world. Things which are clearly observed and understood in the things made both of his eternal power and divinity. Yet, alleging to be wise, they became fools. Yes, they did. They're bigger fools today than they were then. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul admonished that that which is seen has not come into being from things visible. So scientists admit that they cannot see 94% of the mass in the universe, but they claim to know it's there. 1,900 years after Paul wrote those words, men can indeed recognize them as truth through their own molecular and astronomical sciences. And yet they still deny God, even though they still admit that science alone does not adequately explain creation. It can't explain dark matter, but they know it's there. They know that it is the vast majority of the mass of the universe, and they admit they can't explain it. They can't explain conscience or consciousness. However, Christians can honestly admit that there is more to existence or creation than man can understand, and that order, conscience, and consciousness do not arise from nothing. The creator God transcends the creation, and man is promised to transcend this current material world with him. Christianity is a faith of humility rooted in a belief in transcendentalism. And once transcendentalism is properly understood, it must be realized that the God of the Bible is true and that the Adamic man must comply with his creator. The belief that creation, conscience and consciousness, have evolved on their own from nothing, leads one to the hopelessness of materialism. And that man, in that manner, believes that he can become his own master. That humanistic religion is also only mere faith, even though they try to call it science. But it is a faith of arrogance and rebellion from the inevitable God. The children of Israel were called to come out of that rebellion in Christ. Verse 5. I will boast on behalf of such a man, but I will not boast on behalf of myself, unless in respect of weaknesses if perhaps I should desire to boast, I would not be foolish. Indeed, I speak truth, but I am sparing, unless anyone would, regard, would reckon in regard to me more than what he sees of me or whatever he hears from me, because those things are what counts. That's all Paul wanted men to see of him, his physical appearance, you must judge things according to appearance, and the words from out of his mouth would show what's in his heart. Paul's struggle here is to speak the truth in spite of the fact that the truth is necessarily seen as boasting, yet to retain a humble disposition in spite of that boasting. He would rather speak on behalf of this other man, whom he had known in the past, rather than on behalf of himself. Verse 7, and in order that I would not be exalted in the excellence of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh has been given to me, an adverse messenger, that it would strike me in order that I would not be exalted. The Codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Claromontanus Montanus all want the final clause here. That I would not, in order that I would not be exalted. The clause is included in the third century papyri, P46, and the Codices Vaticanus, Frerianus, and the majority text. Paul of Tarsus had great knowledge, both of Yahweh God and of his people. He was gifted by the Holy Spirit with a knowledge of history, with a knowledge of scripture with an ability in languages. All of these gifts from God facilitated the mission which he was given by God. Yet after he was converted on the road to Damascus, he had very poor eyesight, which was evidently caused by some degenerative condition resulting from the manner whereby he was converted. In the aftermath of his experience on the road to Damascus, we see it recorded in Acts chapter 9, that when Hananias first spoke to Paul, at once there fell from his eyes like scales. Then his sight was restored, and arising he was immersed. Yet that does not mean that Paul's eyesight was restored perfectly, or that he would not suffer some additional consequence later on. In chapter 4 of his epistle to the Galatians, which was actually written a couple of years before this epistle, Paul wrote in verse 13, Now you know that in sickness of the flesh I had announced the good message to you earlier, and of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe. But as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. Then what is your blessing?" I testify to you that, if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. As Christ had told his apostles, which is recorded at Matthew 10.40, he that receives you receives me. Paul refers to that very thing, and then he also commends the Galatians for having pity on him for his poor eyesight, even to the point, where they would trade eyes with him. In Galatians 6, verse 11, Paul had once again referred to his bad eyesight, describing the largeness of the letters which he wrote with his own hand. Here the word satana, a a messenger, an adverse messenger, or literally a messenger of adversity. Here the word satana is read as if as if it were an adjective and translated as adverse. And we can't say that Paul did not intend that meaning. The word is transliterated from the Hebrew, and in Strong's Hebrew dictionaries, entries 7853 and 7854, it is explained that the Hebrew word appears in the Old Testament as a verb meaning to attack or as a noun designating an opponent or an adversary. It may have more properly been rendered as a noun here, reading a messenger of adversity. Since the word is not accompanied with the definite article, we do not read it as a substantive, which would indicate that it refers to a particular adversary, perhaps quote unquote Satan. Right? This messenger didn't come from Satan, but it was a messenger of adversity. Here Paul simply explains that his poor eyesight was a messenger of adversity from God in order that Paul would stay humble, not thinking too highly of himself on account of all all of the other excellent gifts which he had been granted. Verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I have exhorted the prince concerning this, that it may depart from me. And he told me, my favor is enough for you, since the power is perfected in weakness therefore most gladly will I still more boast in my weakness in order that the power of Christ would dwell upon me the majority text has since my power is perfected in weakness Paul would not meaning Christ's right Paul would not be relieved of his weakness through prayer since it was the will of God for him to have such a weakness, that he be humbled in such a manner. The power of God is perfected in weakness. Seeing that if Paul thought that his ministry and everything which he had endured were from of his own ability, then he could not give the credit to God. If Paul endured things that he himself couldn't possibly have endured, then he had to give the credit to God. The power of God is manifest when men do things that they could not realistically accomplish on their own. When we suffer such trials, we are not always so fortunate in this life to learn the reasons for those trials. But Paul is saying that he prayed and learned through his prayer why his poor eyesight was such an obstacle to him. Verse 10. On which account I am well pleased with weaknesses, with injuries, with torment, with persecutions and difficulties on behalf of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am powerful. The Greek word anagke in the plural is torments here, but in the King James version it is only necessities. The Dallas Scott defined the word as force, constraint, necessary necessity, actual force, violence or torture. Force or necessity. Necessity, in that case, means to do something forcibly for a purposeful reason. As a necessity, to be forced to do something because you must do it for some reason or other. Likewise, one Corinthians chapter seven verse twenty-six, where the King James version has distress for the same word, we interpret it as violence. So what I'm saying is that the King James Version tends to translate this word anagke without enough force. Among the challenges which Paul has faced in the execution of his ministry, which he refers to here and which he had already recounted in chapter 11 of this epistle, he clearly listed things which can be considered to have been torments far beyond simple necessity. The King James usually understates this word for some reason. When men recognize their own weaknesses, and in humility they submit themselves to their God, that is when they may find the true power, which is within the providence of God, and that he may indeed work within them, as he worked within Paul, to accomplish the things That Paul had to do. Verse 11, I've become foolish. You have compelled me. Indeed, I ought to be joined by you. For in nothing am I inferior to those most eminent apostles or ambassadors, if also I am nothing. And once again, As it was in verse 5 of chapter 11 of this epistle, the label, those most eminent ambassadors or apostles, is affixed by Paul to those pretentious men who have opposed him in Corinth. This has nothing to do with the twelve. It has everything to do with the people in Corinth who Paul has been addressing here for several chapters, who have been trying to undermine and corrupt the assembly of Christians in Corinth. This Christian idea that the word apostle was used only to apply to the Twelve is a false church idea. It needs to be thrown out because it's not true. Paul used it here and in chapter 11, sarcastically, of his adversaries in Corinth. Paul accounts himself to be nothing, because in his humility, he acknowledges that whatever he has been able to do was by the power of God. Simply repeating those things which he had accomplished, he admits that he is boasting because it was not him, but rather it was God who accomplished those things through him. Verse 12 Indeed, the signs of the apostle or the signs of the ambassador were accomplished among you in all endurance with signs and wonders and powers the reference to the signs of the Apostle, is evidently a reference to those things of the Spirit which the Apostles were granted at the first Christian Pentecost, described in the early chapters of the book of Acts. While we do not have many details from Paul's year and a half in Corinth, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 18, his preaching of the gospel must have made a tremendous impression that persuaded a substantial number of the Corinthians to Christ. Two of the Judean assembly hall leaders in Corinth were also converted to Christ by Paul, the first one being Christus in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, and then Sosthenes. Who had at first opposed him openly was later brought to Christ. And we learn that by comparing Acts chapter 18, verse 17, with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul had written that if to others I am not an ambassador, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, The assurance of my message is you in the prince. That word for assurance is sephrakis, which is literally a seal, but also an assurance or a proof. Verse 13, what is it in which you have been inferior in, more than the rest of the assemblies, except that I myself have not been burdensome to you? Forgive me, this injustice, and Paul again makes an analogy that since he has not required anything of the Corinthians, he has shortchanged them in that regard alone, while other assemblies had provided for his needs. Then he says in verse 14, Behold, readily, this third time I engage to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek your things, but you. The Greek word echo is generally to have, but here it is to engage. Liddell and Scott explain that in their definition of echo. The King James Version took an adverb, which is here rendered as readily, and a verb, which is literally I have, but we translated it, I engage, and they wrote I am ready, which is is fine. It's kind of weird, but it's fine. Exactly what Paul meant by this third time I engaged to come to you is only discovered upon close inspection of the account of his travel plans as they are described in both of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. Paul is referring to the number of times he had planned this visit to the Corinthians, which he is once again planning as he writes this. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that at first Paul had planned on visiting Corinth after he departed from Ephesus. And then, leaving Corinth to travel through Macedonia, he would visit Corinth again before departing for Jerusalem. That was his first plan. But then, with all of the strife and division within the assembly of Corinth, He later postponed his visit and changed his plans so that he would travel through Macedonia and then visit Corinth only once, where he would spend the winter before going on to Judea. However, changing his mind once more, Paul then decided to winter in Nicopolis and make a shorter visit to Corinth before departing for Judea. It is therefore this third plan which he is referring to here. This is the third time I engage to come to you. The children are not obliged to store up for the parents, but the parents for the children. That's in response to where Paul says, I do not seek your things, but you. Paul himself saw himself symbolically as a parent in relation to those whom he brought to Christ. He had written in that same respect in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 where he said in verse 14, I do not write these things regarding you, but as I would advise my beloved children Although you may have a myriad of tutors among the anointed, certainly not many fathers. Indeed, in Christ Joshua, through the good message, I had begotten you. However, there's an exception which must be made note of. Paul never asked for the title father, nor did he evidently ever receive it, which is something that Christ himself had discouraged Call no man your father upon the earth. Paul says in verse 15, Now I will most gladly spend and be wholly expended on behalf of your souls. Even if loving you more abundantly, I am loved less. Paul didn't want their things but but them and said the children are not obliged to store up for the parents, but the parents for the children, and that he would spend until he had nothing left. He would rather spend and expend himself on the Corinthians than take anything from them. The Nestle Alan text, the Novum Testamentum Grecae, marks the last clause of this verse as a question. If loving you more abundantly, am I loved less? The phrase ton sukon humon here is of your souls, but it may have been rendered of your lives. The word suke is often used in scripture to refer to the temporal life of man as opposed to the transcendent spiritual life body, which is the pneuma, or the spirit. The word life, in the King James Version, in 1 John chapter 3, I'm sorry, the word is life. The word suke is translated as life. In the King James Version, in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 16, where we read, hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, that word is suke, he commended his numa to the Father. He, his numa departed his body, which is his spirit. But the temporal life of man is often called the suke, which is usually translated as soul in the King James Version. Paul saw his mission in the gospel as a fulfillment to that same thing which John referred to in John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Every Christian should have that attitude that he is to expend or spend his life edifying and assisting the other members of the body of Christ. Verse 16, but it is that I have not imposed on you. Otherwise, being villainous or treacherous, I have taken you with guile or with deceit, by seduction. The various manuscripts each have one of three different verbs in the first clause of this verse where we have imposed. They would all be translated as either burdened or imposed. Paul asserts that if he had imposed on them, if he had demanded that they support him as he instructed them in the gospel, as he explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he indeed had a right to do, only then could he be accused of having deceived them. But since he never burdened them, since he never asked them for anything, no one could ever accuse him of deceiving them because he asked nothing of them, and therefore, he had nothing to gain for himself in return. Even though, during that time, he was supported by other assemblies. Here, he also makes an allusion to his words at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which he, where he likens the seduction of Eve to the possible corruption of the Christian assembly. So, he's still playing on that idea. Verse 17, Of those several whom I had sent to you, through them have I defrauded you? I have summoned Titus and have sent him with the brother. Has Titus defrauded you? Have we not walked in the same spirit, nor in the same steps? Paul has not asked anything of the Corinthians, and therefore he challenges them to consider whether he or even Titus, who had just come to him from Corinth, had defrauded them in any way. Of course, they would not be able to answer in the affirmative, so they would see that they walked in the same spirit, in the same steps. Timothy was also in Corinth at an earlier time, a year before this, not quite a year, having delivered Paul's first epistle to them. So he must be, also be among those several whom Paul refers to here. Verse 19, But now do you suppose that we are speaking in defense to you? We speak among the anointed before Yahweh, and all things, beloved, on behalf of your building or your edification. The Novum Testamentum Grece does not mark the first clause of this verse as a question where we may write, but now you suppose that we are speaking in defense to you. The third century papyrus, P46, has the negative particle, oo at the front of this verse. And in that manner, it would be read, as Steyer has it in his definition at ooh, that oo is used interrogatively when an affirmative answer is expected. Meaning, do you suppose that we, that we are speaking in defense to you? And the Corinthians would have to say yes. Of course, they would be wrong, but they would have to say yes. Other manuscripts have other variations of this clause, none of them significant. For I fear, verse 20, for I fear, having come, perhaps I should not find you such as I desire and I would be found by you such as you do not desire. In other words, he would be awfully angry with them if he did not find them such as he desires. Lest perhaps there be contention, jealousy, angers, intrigues, bragging, slanders, indignations, disturbances. For this very reason, Paul had already twice delayed his planned visit to Corinth. This is his third plan to see them. Twice he'd already put it off, delayed his visit because of these reasons. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he had spoken at length in reference to the contentions and divisions among them. He evidently wanted the assembly to straighten out their own problems before he visited them, as he had also admonished them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that they should be able to hear and decide matters among themselves without such quarrels. Again, upon my having come, should my God humble me before you, and should I mourn for those many having failed before and not repenting after the uncleanness and fornication and licentiousness which they have practiced? <clears throat> these are both questions with all certainty. The King James Version and practically every other version do not read either of these two clauses in verse 21 as questions. The verse begins with a negative particle, may, to which the King James Version adds a word in italics, and. Here, I must read may, which is generally not as an interrogative particle. And again, cite Thayer, Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon, and Thayer says in his definition it may, part three, that as an interrogative particle, it is used when a negative answer is expected. And the second clause here, which does begin with the conjunction, kahi, which is generally and, continues the interrogation with the word and. It thereby extends the interrogation. Here in verse 21, if we examine the Greek, we have basically the same grammatical pattern which appears in the verses that King James, the King James Version and others do read as questions in verses 17 and 18 of this same chapter. The questions in those verses are written in the same pattern as those which we we read as questions here in this verse beginning with may, and then using using verbs of the indicative mood. <clears throat> Where Paul asks, again, upon my having come, should my God humble me before you? He seems to be making a rhetorical statement, by which he means that if he comes in anger, it is really not himself who would be humbled, but the Corinthians who would be humbled. And the evidence of our the evidence of the veracity of our translation is in these two epistles to the Corinthians. Speaking earlier of this same intending visit to Corinth, in one Corinthians four twenty one, Paul asks, What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod? Or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Paul's using a rhetorical device here to say basically the same thing. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul spoke of being powerful in presence in the face of those who thought that perhaps he was severe in word only, but not in action when he would be present. Where Paul asks here in the second part of this, of this verse 21, and should I mourn for those many having failed before and not repenting after the uncleanness and fornication and licentiousness which they have practiced, the answer to that is once again negative. No, Paul, you shouldn't mourn, because we know that you won't. Paul left no space for such empathy for unrepentant sinners. As he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of a fornicator, to deliver such a one unto Satan for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Where Paul did tell the Corinthians in that same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 5.2, that they should mourn, he told them they should mourn so that the unrepentant sinner would be taken out from among them. He's not mourning for unrepentant sinners. He's mourning that the the assembly didn't appeal to God to remove the sinners, send them to Satan. From 1 Corinthians 5.2, from the King James Version, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who had done this thing might be taken away from among you? Therefore, our reading of these clauses in 2 Corinthians 12.21 as rhetorical questions, ostensibly questions which expect negative answers, is consistent with the context of Paul's other statements in these epistles, and with this we shall commence with 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two witnesses, even three, shall every matter be established. The Codex Alexandrinus has the first clause of this passage exactly as it is in 1214, readily this third time I engage to come to you. It is evident from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul had written an earlier and now lost epistle to the assembly of Corinth, before the one which we know as his first and in 1 Corinthians nine he says I wrote unto you in an epistle meaning in a previous letter not to company with fornicators <clears throat> and that's the only way that we know that that letter ever existed and therefore that earlier epistle also seems to have contained Paul's original travel plans, which, as he explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, were for him to leave Ephesus and go to Corinth before heading to Macedonia. Then he wrote the epistle, which we know as 1 Corinthians. And when he wrote that, it is evident he delayed coming to Corinth which we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And then in chapter 16 of that epistle, he says he will come and winter after he passes through Macedonia, planning to spend a winter in Corinth. But then Paul's travel plans are delayed once more, and he is wintering in Nicopolis. Yet here he attests for a third time that he will indeed visit Corinth. And he has written to them three times, saying that he would visit them. So Paul is making an analogy of the three epistles promising his visit, that they serve as three witnesses, and that he will indeed make an appearance in Corinth once again. Of course, the law of two or three witnesses is cited, which is found in Scripture at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Verse 2, 2 Corinthians 13, I have said beforehand, and I forewarn, while being present the second time and being absent now, to those who have failed before and to all the rest, that's a parenthetical statement, to those who have sinned before, perhaps, and to all the rest. In other words, people who are unrepentant and yet judge others, because you can't Judge a man for sin if you are an unrepentant sinner. To those who have failed before and to all the rest, that if I come, perhaps that I will not again be sparing. And this verse here also proves the veracity of our translation of the verse in 2 Corinthians 12.21. The majority text interpolates a word meaning, I write, into the parenthetical remark, so we see that in the King James Version. The phrase, while being present the second time and being absent now, <clears throat> is not, as some translations read it, a statement that Paul had already been to Corinth a second time. Rather, Paul is presaging or presaging. What may happen while he is there a second time, which hasn't happened yet, which does not occur until he finally visits them as he has been planning throughout these three epistles. This statement here by Paul. Provides support for our translation of his statements in verse 21 as rhetorical questions expecting negative answers. Paul certainly does not expect that God shall humble him before the Corinthians, since he does not plan on being sparing with those who may still remain in contention. Paul's attitude in this regard has not changed. Since he wrote in his first epistle to the Corinthians, as we have already cited here, where in 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul asks, What will ye? Meaning, what should, you, what should you want, or what do you want? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or with love, and in the spirit of meekness? Since you seek a proof in Christ, of Christ speaking in me, and then Paul makes a long parenthetical statement which covers the rest of verse 3 and all of verse 4 and he says who to you is not a weakness but is power among you although he had been crucified by weakness yet he lives by the power of Yahweh and we are weak with him but we shall live with him by the power of Yahweh in you and of course the weakness that crucified him are, are the Edomite bastards who do not have the power of life in the Spirit, where Christ does have the power of life in the Spirit, and all of his children will live forever. Paul had already attested that the signs of apostleship were evident when he had fulfilled his ministry in Corinth. But in the book of Acts, in chapter 18, we have records of only a very few details from his ministry in Corinth, which was conducted perhaps six years before he had written this epistle. Neither do we have the letters which the Corinthians had been writing to Paul. And ostensibly, there were at least three of those during these exchanges, which we see in the two surviving epistles written by Paul to the Corinthians. It would be a a gem to have all six epistles. Yet here it is clear that Paul had heard of someone in Corinth, either in writing or through the reports of Titus, who demanded of Paul a sign proving that he was an apostle of Christ. And he continues, after his parenthetical remark, In verse 5, You yourselves must make trial whether you are in the faith. You must examine yourselves. Truly, do you not yourselves observe that Yahshua Christ is among you unless somehow you are spurious? Now I expect that you will perceive that we are not spurious. In the Novum testamentum grece, the punctuation does not extend the question to the last clause of verse 5, which may in that manner be read, truly, do you not yourselves observe that Yahshua Christ is among you? If not, somehow you are spurious. And that word spurious comes from the Greek word adokimus. Adokimus. Strong's number 96 is an adjective, and it is rendered as spurious here, where the King James treats the word as a noun and translates it as reprobate. Its antonym, its opposite, is documents, which appears in verse 7 of this chapter as approved in both our translation and in the King James Version. Why would somebody be unapproved by Christ? Perhaps they're not of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the only reason. Liddell and Scott define adocinus in its primary use to mean not standing the test, spurious, properly of coin. That's how it was usually used. And in its same sense, the word adocumus appears twice in the Septuagint, in Proverbs 25.4 and in Isaiah one hundred twenty two, where in both places it is used to describe drossy or worthless silver, because of the impurities it contained. Impure coins would be spurious because they were cut, because they contained materials which would not be found in authentic coins. Take a good ingot of silver, mix it half with brass or lead, try to pass it off as a real coin. Well, you take a good white Israelite, and mix it with some nigger, and and you basically get the message. That's the same process. Using the word here, Paul certainly makes reference to the law of God, which states that a bastard shall not enter. The congregation of God. Joshua Christ is not among us when there are spurious people in our company. The only way that believers professing Christ could be rejected in such a manner as if they are indeed bastards and not sons, as Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 7, in verse. 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why do they work iniquity? Because they're pretending to be sheep, and they're not. They're goats. Yahweh said, To the children of Israel, you only have I known of all the people of the earth, of all the families of the earth. Paul had written to this same assembly in this same manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he had said from verse 27, Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself, and thus, from of the wheat bread, let him drink, and from of the cup, I'm sorry, from of the wheat bread, let him eat, and from of the cup, let him drink. For he that is eating and drinking, eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. Those wolves among the sheep, they know who they are. For this reason, There are among you many feeble and sickly, and plenty have fallen asleep. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, anacrino, not crino, it doesn't say judged ourselves as we see in the King James. That translation is plain dishonest. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. Same thing Paul's saying here all over again. Christ is among us. If we've come out from among them and touched not the unclean, otherwise, some of us are spurious. And we pray to Yahweh that you will do nothing evil, verse 7 to Corinthians 13. Not in order that we appear approved, but that what you may do what is good, and we may be as if serious. Paul is professing a desire that the Corinthians repent and demonstrate a Christian conduct so exemplary as if to make even the apostles look like they are unworthy of the kingdom of God. Not that Paul or the apostles could actually be serious but that compared to the excellent behavior which they prayed the Corinthians would display, they would appear as if they were spurious. The prayer once again demonstrates Paul's rather sincere humility, but also reflects a worldview in which Paul suggests that only the true sons of God could ever fully conform themselves to the ideals set forth in the word of God. Verse 8, for we have not any power against the truth, but in defense of truth. The truth is consistent and unchanging whether or not we want to believe it. Therefore, we can contend for it, but we cannot contend against it. We are delighted whenever we would be weak, but you would be powerful. And this we also pray, for your restoration. Paul would be pleased to see his brethren elevated, even if it meant that he himself were debased. That reflects the attitude which all Christians should have, working towards the edification of their fellows, even if it is at their own expense. The Greek word here, katartesis, Strong's number 2676, a word which only appears here in the entire New Testament, even though the verb appears elsewhere and here as well. Catartesis is defined by Liddell and Scott as a restoration and then as a training or education or discipline. Where the King James Version has perfection. Paul had already explained in this epistle that his gospel is the gospel of reconciliation. The purpose of the gospel is to restore the children of Israel to the position of the sons of God, and therefore Paul seeks their restoration. Verse 10. Therefore, being absent, I write these things in order that being present, I would not make use of severity in accordance with the authority which the prince has given to me for building or edification and not for destroying. The humble nature of the records of the Book of Acts and Paul's epistles do not afford us any insight as to the methods by which Paul may be able to chastise the assembly of Corinth or those who continue to oppose him. While in Acts chapter 20, Luke had recorded Paul's three-month sojourn in Greece at this time, which must have included nearly a month in Corinth. And while Paul must have indeed visited the Corinthians before moving on to the Troad, we have no details of that visit to inform us of what ultimately may have occurred. None whatsoever. Furthermore, brethren, be delighted Be restored. That's the verb form of that word catartesis, translated restoration. Be encouraged, be like-minded, be at peace, and Yahweh shall be of love and of peace with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the saints greet you. The favor of Prince Christ and the love of Yahweh and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with all of you. P forty six wants the word holy, and some manuscripts attend, append the word amen. Once again, where the King James version has perfected in verse eleven, the Christian New Testament has restored. The Greek verb katartizo is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean to adjust or put in order again, to restore, and then metaphorically to put to a right mind. After that, it has to furnish completely. As they say that the perfect passive participle was used in the sense of meaning well-furnished or complete. However, we prefer to believe that Paul, in agreement with his gospel of reconciliation, was urging the Corinthians, who he also explained were of the dispersions of ancient Israel, to be restored to Yahweh their God in Christ. With a proper Christian identity worldview, we can properly translate the New Testament as all of the seemingly Minor statements throughout Paul's epistles make a big difference, but they have been glossed over. And the primary meanings of these words have been ignored by all of the popular translations. There are several ways to say complete or perfect in Greek. Teleus is one. And other words signifying those things often appear in Scripture when it is those things which are meant. But ketarchizo and ketarchesis primarily mean restore and restoration. And Paul's gospel is indeed the gospel of reconciliation and restoration. This concludes our presentation of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. Galway willing, We will commence with our commentary on Paul's epistles in early July with the epistle to the Galatians, and take a digression to cover a few other topics in the meantime, as we shall be on the road. Tomorrow night, Esther, fraud or fable? They are your only two choices. Esther, fraud or fable, part two. Sunday afternoon... With Sven Longshanks, we hope to discuss what is white in a world of bastards, and how white nationalists and identity Christians alike can properly cope with ethnicity in Europe and America. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh.